You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I am very, very pleased to have Dr. Jacob Kirby, who is the uh, Associate Chair of the Biology Department at the University of South Dakota. He is also a distinguished professor, and he is quite possibly really one of the most influential persons in the United States when it comes to uh, studying amphibians and amphibian decline. I I really want to get into this episode because I've been dying to talk to him, so I'm going to kind of cut the intro short. So, uh, Dr. Kirby, Jacob, welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Why don't we start off with with your story? I mean, you have a, a very, very long and distinguished career that has really, really focused on a, a, a myriad of amphibian-related issues. Why don't we start off with, with the beginning? Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and tell us your story? How did you start out? Where did your interest in amphibians begin and what led you to where you are today? Yeah, sure. And th- thanks, Dan, for having me on the show. I'm excited to talk and, uh, and listen. I've enjoyed your podcast, so I'm, I'm happy to be on it. My pleasure. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of times when people talk to me, you know, you know, uh, students in the university, they're like, oh, you're the frog guy. I mean, actually, in the whole state, I'm the frog guy of South Dakota. <laughs> and and they say, oh, you must have been playing with frogs when you were four years old and, you know, loving them. And that you just always knew you were going to do this. Right. And I say, no, man, like I grew up in Los Angeles in the city. And, you know, nature for me was, you know, uh, a house sparrow outside. <laughs> so I actually didn't really uh, know much about the natural world, to be honest with you, because I kind of grew up in a city. And uh, it wasn't until I got to college, um, I was like most, um, you know, undergrads, I was a good student, and I thought I'm going to be a doctor. So I signed up for biology to be pre-med. And I knew that what you needed to do was, you know, get involved in research, because that would look good on your resume, and then you could get into med school. And so that's what I did. I signed up for a lab, and they were, I got into two different labs. Um, one of the labs was looking at pre-dawn measurements of plants. And the other one was hanging out all night with amphibians. And I said, I'm going to choose the latter one. <laughs> so that's what I did, really with the whole intention of being a doctor. And once I started going out in the field and really experiencing um, the natural world and catching critters and things like that, I thought, is this an actual career? Like, people do this? And so really it was from that point on that I decided, like, this was for me. I didn't want to hang out with sick people all day long, hear them complaining about their you know, pains and all that kind of stuff when I could be outside with my feet in like crystal clear streams, um, you know, catching frogs. I live in an urban area too. And I mean, where I live is somewhat, somewhat suburban, but it's getting more and more encroached upon as time goes by. But I, I, I have conversations with people who live very, very far removed from the city and it's just such a different world. And I could totally understand why you'd want to gravitate towards that instead of, uh, the, the people aspect of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think maybe I'm overreacting. People ask me why I'm in South Dakota. I think that's part of the reason it's such a, a beautiful, natural, rural area where we're at that um, I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's one of those places that I'd absolutely love to go to, but un- unfortunately, I might not ever have that that luxury. But it's, I mean, it's got to be beautiful, though, there. Uh, what's the, the, the lay of the land like in South Dakota? Yeah, so where we're at at the University of South Dakota is in Vermilion, and that's in the south southeastern tip of South Dakota. So, from my backyard, I can actually see the hills of Nebraska. Um, there's the Missouri River that kind of cuts right um, through that part of South Dakota, Nebraska. So we have this nice riparian zone. 
there, but mostly it's native sort of prairies and grasslands. And so a lot of that, of course, has been converted to agriculture. Uh, but nonetheless, there's lots of cool, um, you know, just open spaces and big skies and all that kind of stuff. It's got to be incredible. Well, my next question is kind of vague, and I kind of left it vague on purpose because I really wanted to hear what your take on it would be. Why study amphibians? Yeah, you know, and again, going back to my kind of original story, uh, it wasn't really like I had some sort of big mission or idea about what it was. It just, that's what I ended up doing. And then I sort of learned the lines of like, okay, uh, you know, amphibians are important because, you know, uh, they are one of the most threatened uh, vertebrates um, to study, and so we really should pay attention to them more than any other animal. But really, again, it was weirdly a pragmatic thing that got me interested in them. Um, and that was because uh, at the core, I'm a scientist, and amphibians are really uh, ideal animals to do science on because they're not giant. They're not going to bite you. You're not going to get some sort of weird disease. <laughs> so really early on when I asked my, you know, undergrad advisor, like, hey, why do we use these amphibians? Like that was the pragmatic answer. It sort of just got me involved. And that's why I could do a lot of research. And as you mentioned, I've been able to do a lot of different types of research in a lot of different fields because of the nature of, of what amphibians are. Of course, as I've done that over my career of many, many years, <laughs> I've realized, of course, that there's a lot of core, really important reasons on why we want to look at amphibians. Um, and again, it's a lot of that has to do just simply with um, the, the conservation. So these are animals that are particularly at risk, and it's estimated that a third of them, you know, uh, are going to disappear in the next several years if we're not acting, being proactive about a lot of these different factors that are leading to their declines. That kind of leads into my next question, too, which is about the, the, the threats that amphibians face on a global level. And we in the, the general public, at least, when, when we think about amphibians in a scientific text, at least the, the majority of information that's sort of transferred to the, the lake community, we almost always think about them or perceive them as being threatened in one way or another. That's always the stories that seem to make the news is the amphibian decline, the amphibian threats. Well, if you were to list the top three threats to amphibian as a whole like which would they be and, and why because i i feel like the we understand that they're threatened but i feel like there has to be multiple factors i mean what can you tell us about some of those factors yeah yeah and there, there are many factors i mean the, the number one factor and this really isn't just for amphibians but pretty much all wildlife is just simply habitat destruction so there's continual, you know, conversion of land from natural spaces to either agricultural or um, urban, all these sorts of ideas, right? So all across the world, um, you know, we're, we're changing land from these natural spaces uh, into more human-dominated spaces. And that's just not really good for amphibians. Like, as I mentioned before, I grew up as a city kid. I never saw an amphibian because where would they be? There's no way an amphibian can be. A bird has a chance maybe, but not an amphibian, right? And so that, that's definitely the number one reason. It's just sort of um, loss of habitat um, that is sort of growing every year, right? Um, secondly, of course, again, applicable to all species is climate change. Um, but that's probably even more important when we talk about amphibians. Because um, we think about climate change, of course, we think about changes in temperature, but you have to think about uh, changer, changes in moisture levels, right? And so uh, amphibians are really, of course, tied to water and supplies and, and staying, you know, wet and those sorts of ideas. 
And so with climate change, I mean, even though it's sort of, you know, weird across the planet, so some areas might actually get a ton more water, um, they're going to get a ton more water in a short amount of time and then have a long drought period with no water. And so the frogs really aren't adapted over that. They sort of, you know, wherever they are across the earth, they become accustomed to different amounts of water at different periods of time. And climate change has really thrown a big wrench in that. And so you can see a lot of populations disappearing just because the frogs really can't live without that, you know, moisture or it's getting too hot for them or even too cold for them, right? So it's very, very interesting. Um, and then the last one I would say, and again, there's a lot. <laughs> there are other things we could talk about like invasive species and pollution and you know, um, so, so many things. But the other one I would say is the big one with frogs um, is disease. And so just in the same way, you know, we're um, experiencing, you know, COVID and so the impacts it has on the human population. Um, there are pathogens out there that, believe it or not, are far worse than coronavirus, um, wiping out uh, entire sort of populations of amphibians um, across the entire globe. So that, I think, is a huge concern for us. Um, and in the same way that, you know, um, we think coronavirus got to impact humans by sort of moving around the world really quickly. That's that's the problem with, um, you know, these amphibian pathogens as well. So we're able to move things around the world much more quickly. Um, and so they're sort of encountered with these new pathogens that they just don't have the defenses for. I often wonder if people, the, I guess I should say the members of the general public would be more uh more aware and cognizant of the 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 extent to which disease threatens amphibians in the context of of COVID-19 because as human beings re relating to this I mean this is something that has obviously happened multiple times throughout human history we've we've had outbreaks of bubonic plague we've had cholera outbreaks you know we've had all sorts of outbreaks of disease but really within recent memory this is has to be arguably the the most severe do you think that people's attitudes will, will change given the context of the the world as it is now? I mean, will people be able to better relate to amphibian disease because we've sort of been through something similar ourselves, or is that just kind of pulling at straws? Yeah, I mean that that's the hope. I, I do think that um, I'll say in interviews like this and, and other you know discussions, it it makes an easy talking point, right? So <laughs> instead of being able to talk about the abstract and sort of, you know, highlight disease and things like that, when, when I can talk about, uh, you know, people's experiences with coronavirus, it does seem to resonate a lot more powerfully. So people can understand about how quickly things can spread, you know, how, you know, certain parts of a population can be really hit very hard. Like these are all it's kind of been fun for me as a disease ecologist in a sick sort of way, I suppose, <laughs> but, but to watch the general public be educated on disease, right? Um, so there's all these terms that, that I've been using for decades that suddenly, you know, now, I don't know, the general public somehow knows what PCR is now, right? Like that was something no one ever knew about, right? Get a PCR test. Like, how do you know what that is? Like I do those in my lab for amphibians all the time. And so I just think, yeah, generally, of course, all that education is going to play into, you know, people's understanding. And I think it, it makes it just easier to communicate the issues too. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I, I had some history working in med. I actually worked in a laboratory while I was in college. I worked in a laboratory full time. I mean, this was just a human hospital laboratory, but just that little bit of extra understanding and information that I received helped me better understand situations like this. 
Yeah, and then I think the major point I like to make too is that, um, you know, recall that humans are just one species. <laughs> so when I talk about some of these amphibian pathogens, I mean, they're wiping out 10, 20, 30 different species. So I think that's a bigger sort of thing to consider um, as well is, is when we're talking about some of these pathogens, sort of how big they are, right? <laughs> so, you, so you can imagine even as terrible as, you know, coronavirus is, you know, um, it, it's, it's killing a small percentage of our population. You know, uh, I, and I think people would probably take it a lot more serious if it was actually like one of these amphibian pathogens that wiped out the entire population, right? <laughs> and you can experience it that way. Yeah. So I think, again, being able to communicate those ideas, imagine, imagine if coronavirus, you know, killed everyone in your town and all your pets, <laughs> then you'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's what we're dealing with. This is, this is kind of a, um, I hope I'm not misquoting you on this, but I, I'd read something to the effect that, you know, well, people often say that canaries, uh, excuse me, that frogs are the canaries in the coal mine. I mean, is this an accurate statement? Is this something that is really like a, an, an appropriate analogy or is this kind of uh, misguided? Yeah, so actually probably my most contentious paper that I published was sort of speaking against this idea. <laughs> so I, I think, like you mentioned, the general idea in the public is that amphibians are fragile and they're in peril and these are like the most sensitive species on Earth and uh, we really need to, you know, watch for them and whatnot. And so I, I thought that was an interesting concept. So I dove into the literature and sort of just examined them. And so what I did in this one study was actually look at uh, pollution. So look at different contaminants and just compare them because there's loads and loads of environmental toxicology studies that basically expose lots of different animals to different levels of pesticides <laughs> and, you know, see who dies first kind of deal, right? Um, and a lot of that, of course, is for regulatory purposes and understanding what's safe and whatnot, but it provided a nice blanket of hundreds and hundreds of studies to look at. And in the end, sort of uh, the answer was that they were not really all that sensitive. And, but more specifically, I think that's not the point. I think more specifically, the point is that that's a silly comparison. <laughs> and so what I mean by that is when I when you say that term canary in a uh, coal mine, and so, you know, for listeners that don't know that reference, that's basically talking about, um, you know, miners um, going into these coal mines and they're basically being, you know, um, carbon monoxide gas that they would slowly inhale and it would end up killing them. And so they brought canaries into that coal mine. And when the canary would drop in, they would know that there was, the levels of carbon monoxide are too high and would run out, right? But again, the canary is a single species. So, um, you know, imagine if you brought in 2,000 bird species into that coal mine. Um, of course, not all 2,000 species are going to drop dead at the same moment, right? <laughs> so, so some species are incredibly sensitive and some are incredibly insensitive. And so I think the idea overall, interestingly enough, um, is when you say that amphibians are canaries, uh, I, again, remember amphibians represent thousands of different species on the earth, right? And probably when I start talking to people, they kind of intuitively understand that, right? Because there are certain species that we know are very sensitive to lots of different, um, you know, problems in, the, in conservation and things like that. But then we have things like bullfrogs, which are like invasive, right? Like try killing a bullfrog, man. Like these things live in golf course ponds. They're loaded with God knows what. <laughs> and so, like, they're not sensitive at all, but they're an amphibian. And so that's the sort of idea, you know, I think it's a useful tool to help understand that 
there are different biologies, of course, for different animals. Um, but amphibians as a whole are so diverse that you just sort of say that whole group is this one thing is is overly simplistic. That That's my argument, basically. I think there are definitely species that we um, can find in different areas for different stressors <laughs> that give us an indication that same way that that one canary species can help a coal miner, right? Um, you know, but a canary outside, um, you know, uh, where there's, um, you know, an herbicide in the water below them, they're not going to be a great indicator for that. They're going to have no idea, right? So it really it depends on the specific scenarios, I think, is really what's important to think about. I, I totally appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I hate generalizations. And one of the things that bothers me the most is when uh, a news agency, news organization is going to run a story and they're going to use certain buzzwords to try and get people's attention to try and sell the story. And I've heard that analogy repeatedly over and over again, the canaries and the coal mine. And it's just, I, I agree with you. And it never made sense to me because you're dealing with, with thousands of species. And like you just said, like that was the first thing that came to mind with me was, was, was bullfrogs. I mean, you could fire these things out of a cannon and they'll, and they'll survive. But, <laughs> That's right. but I just, I feel like you're right that the perception that every single amphibian species on the earth is just this fragile piece of glass doesn't yeah. really do the, the, the whole understanding of them justice. And, um, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I feel like the public's perception of things needs to be fleshed out. You know, I, I, I totally agree with what you said about, uh, you know, like, like lumping everything together as being one organism when in reality there's, there's, there's so many more, but, uh, I mean, do, do you think that the public's understanding has to go in a direction that's more like detail focused and more based on science rather than just sort of generalized statements? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, when I talk to the public, actually, that they're, they're I feel like they actually people are pretty um, aware and, and intelligent about particular topics. I, my experience is more of like, if you don't really care about amphibians, if you're just a normal person uh, and you see a headline about an amphibian thing that's really detailed and nuanced, you're not going to read it, <laughs> right? Like that's what you sort of talk about. It's like grabbing the headline, right? I think that's what drives a lot of the, the ideas. When I when I actually published that paper, it it caught up. Um, some press and so it was nature wanted to sort of feature it as like one of their news items and so i was talking to one of the reporters that you know sort of reports on all these big uh findings and it was so fascinating because he was just so like amazed that this was you know the truth and then he went to interview like 10 different amphibian you know scientists to get like people to sort of fight back and push back against me and he's like jake i can't find anybody that will disagree with you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, because if you know about it, you know about it, right? Um, it's, it's more just about generally we have only so much attention. And so, you know, whatever we're interested in, we're interested in and, and other things we might not pay attention. But, you know, when you read a newsline about, you know, some musician or something like that, it's like, oh, that's a crazy story. I'm going to read that. If you're not a musician, you may, you know, you may know that's totally wrong and that's a ridiculous thing to say. But anyway, you got the reporters got you to read it. That's really what it is. So there's a weird split I find in terms of like public communication that I think is really um, tough. That's really the thing that I think us scientists have been pushed more and more to do is for us to reach out to the general public and communicate ideas and thoughts and findings because 
it's truly only us that can really explain it in a way, right? I mean, most of us are teaching college freshmen, so we know how to say things, you know, in a way that's not overly technical that only a graduate student can understand, right? Um, but, you know, when you have a general reporter that's reporting on 75,000 different things, of course, they're not going to know everything about that. So I think that's that's been a challenge for our field is to really try to reach out more and more and um, and do interviews like this, honestly, just to try to sort of express what we know and how we know it to really educate people that um, are interested and even people that aren't just to sort of you know get, get it on people's radar. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I, I, I just want to go on record. I just, I do appreciate that contribution. I do again, appreciate you being on the show because in my opinion and in the opinion of, I like to think many of my listeners is that the devil's in the details. And when you really understand the factors that are at work behind a specific cause, it really helps you get a, a better perspective of it. It's not the first time that I've heard people say that, well, I had to get this information out there, but I had to let them put a spin on it so they could sell the story. And I, I just for me on a personal level, I, I'm always thinking like, I, I, I want to hear about the, the technical jargon and, and the methodology and then the results and then the possibility for future studies. And then everyone else is just kind of on the next page of the newspaper or they're scrolling to the next page on their phone. But m maybe that's just me. But I, I, I personally place a tremendous amount of value on that information because to me, uh, that's what interests me. You know, that's, it's, it's those specifics that I think really make things important. Yeah. 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 And, and I agree. And again, you know, and I, I value, you know, folks like you, Dan, that are doing these kinds of podcasts, because that's really what we need is a niche market that people that really care about these things can actually get some depth, right. <laughs> get some understanding of what's going on. Cause you're not going to get that from a, you know, a New York times uh, article, you know, 18 pages in that has, you know, two paragraphs in it. So, yeah. I know. And I, on my, uh, my uh, Google account that I use for the uh, podcast, my email account, you, you get a Google feed because Google, of course, you know, they, they, they track what you look at and, and et cetera. And I get these, these feeds of just like really, really short bits of, of copy. I mean, for anyone out there who doesn't know what copy is, it's basically like someone will hand you like a press release and as a copywriter kind of condense it down to just its bare, bare bones, you know, details. And I'll look at these, these, um, you know, these news stories and I'll kind of, it'll say, you know, for the study, click here. And then I go to click on the study and I can't access the journal because you have to either sign in or log in or something like that. And I mean, at least for me, that's always been kind of a, kind of a stumbling block. In terms of studies and scientific studies, I mean, do you think that these things should be more easily accessible to the average person? Well, right. So that, that is a great question, actually. I mean, I think there's two levels of accessibility. One, the one you're pointing out, the paywall one, is a huge issue. Um, and, and there are sort of groups. So I'm on the Board of Governors for the American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists. So both fish and, you know, frogs and, um, you know, reptiles and whatnot. And, and we, for our journal, have, you know, sort of made it a point to try to create more articles that are what we call open access, right? So articles that anyone can click on and go through, right? And so we really try to push for that because we really see how important that is, right? Um, just for people to be able to read the articles. And, and again, some people say, well, you know, the general public, I don't really know what they're talking about with a scientific article. We really shouldn't, it doesn't really matter if they can see them or not. But again, like COVID is such a great example because <laughs> so many of my friends that aren't scientists are reading journal articles and then, you know, asking me some questions about them. And I'm like, really? Like you're reading a journal article? Like, 
Okay. Yeah. And so, so I do think that that's important to have access to those things. Um, because again, that, that's where all the meat is. And it takes a little bit of education maybe to really, you know, sort of see it and may not understand everything in it. You know, I mean, I teach undergrads how to do these every year. So I, I understand the learning curve there. Um, but I do think it's useful. I think it's really valuable to have that access because when you do, you know, translate it, quote unquote, dumb it down, um, you know, you lose a lot of information by doing that. And that that's where it becomes less interesting, I think, too, right? And and less convincing and hard to understand, right? And then again, I think the COVID's a great example of that, where there's just information passed on and it's confusing because one thing will tell you one thing and another thing will tell you another thing and you're just like i don't really think this works right but if you actually read the studies you understand why those differences exist and what's driving it and all that kind of stuff so yeah so to me and that's not for everyone of course to read those articles but definitely um creating that access is is a huge goal um not just you know in terms of our society but general science as a whole a lot of even the uh, agencies that will get funding from to do these studies, um, you know, sort of say, and here's, you know, you have to publish these things as open access, right? And that, that's something the National Institute of Health has been doing for, you know, uh, medical studies as well. So really trying to say, you know, the, particularly because these are often public funded things, right? So, <laughs> so they're federal dollars that it's your taxpayer money that we're getting why shouldn't you be able to read what we write, right? And so that that's being a sort of a transformational kind of um, thing that's slowly happening. So hopefully we'll be able to read more of those articles going forward. I, I look forward to that. I I like to, I guess, pride myself, you could say, on being an educated consumer. I, I appreciate having quality information in front of me because that that's ultimately what makes, well... I guess bad information does make the world go round. But my, my biggest problem, my biggest conundrum is that it's very, very easy to get bad information. And it's difficult to get good information because the good information you have to really, really look for, whereas bad information is everywhere. I mean, it's just, I mean, that really applies for everything in general, but it, it is reassuring to know that academia is going in that direction, especially like what you said about publicly funded studies because I, I mean i understand that certain studies are proprietary i mean look everyone has to make a living i totally understand that that you know businesses and, and universities and whatnot they have research and whatnot that they're not going to share with the general public but uh I, I i definitely appreciate the fact that it is going in that direction instead of being kind of locked away where the average person who's just curious can't get at it right no no I, and i do think that that's you know that's an important feature to allow people to have that access. And and again, I think it, it becoming, you know, more and more um, digestible. I mean, I think the big thing, like you said, about bad information, what makes peer-reviewed articles so good <laughs> is because I'm, I'm an editor for a couple different journals. And, uh, you know, so a scientist will submit an article to me. And before it even gets sent out to review, there are two editors that are looking, there's a head editor looking at it, just saying this whole thing is junk. I'm not going to bother wasting anyone's time. I read through the whole article and say, okay, yeah, I think this has got a shot. I send it out to two to three other experts in that field that know that stuff backwards and forwards. And then they always tear it apart. I've never, I mean, maybe once or twice get, oh, this is a perfect article to submit it. We as scientists are just not that way. <laughs> We're very critical of one another. But we're also pretty thick skinned. So we don't really, you know, that's just what we expect. We expect to, you know, turn the paper into the teacher and get some red ink back. That, that's literally how this whole process works. 
but it works because then we get feedback from experts in our field that say, you totally missed it on this one. So this whole study is no good. And you just have to kind of accept that, right? And don't make that mistake again, right? Um, but that's the beauty of the that sort of peer review process is it really, um, you know, puts it through the ringer. And so the things that come out are pretty clearly stated and, and are within the confines of what the science show. They're not going to make these crazy statements that you might see in newspaper articles, you know, amphibians all going to die in 10 years. I mean, someone, you know, a journal can, journalist can just write that. <laughs> and if their editor says that's fine, like whatever, that's great. Put it on the front page, right? But in science, you just would never get away with any of that. That is another angle that I, 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 I guess I should consider is the fact that you do have to be careful with what a study comes out and says, because all, all it takes is one journalist to take something out of context because we oh we all know no one ever takes anything out of context right uh i i (laughs) I can understand that too as being a reservation in terms of like wanting to make things easily accessible because all it takes is one bozo to take a statement from a paper out of context and then the next thing you know we're all doomed and i mean we're all doomed anyway but um yeah well, and even still, it's kind of interesting, Dan. So I've been through trainings on how to talk to journalists because I think generally a journalist is trained to write an article to the fourth grade reading level. And so I would learn in my conversations, um, they would ask me a question. I'd give a very detailed answer that was probably at the you know 20th grade reading level. I don't know what it was exactly. But, but then I would say something like, oh, my God, amphibians are so pretty, right? And that's what I get quoted on because, <laughs> you know, so, so I think even then it's the game, it's the aim of the, you know, the target audience and that kind of stuff is, is just that. So, yeah, I think having access to, you know, um, sort of articles written in the careful language that they're supposed to be written in is really important. Yeah. Maybe it's just wishful thinking upon, on my part. I don't know, but yeah, I, I can understand what you mean about being misquoted and you're, you're right. I, I mean, this isn't to disparage journalists at all. I mean, there are people out there who have, have, have integrity, but I, it's just, it's so easy to be misquoted on something and especially something that has a tremendous amount of significance. But I mean, that's why when I find things like that, when I find a, a paper or something like that, that I enjoy, I, I like to be very careful about not I mean, I, I do quote things here and there that I find are interesting on the show, like a new species that was discovered or a new locale or something like that. But I mean, I let the audience do the do the work after that. I mean, I'm not going to give an in-depth analysis of it. But so uh, maybe I'm part of the pro- I'm part of the problem then. I just contradicted myself. But <laughs> no, no. Well, I I want to move on to another uh, hat that you wear. Now you were uh, part of the the BSAL task force. Can can you elaborate a little bit on that for us? Yeah, so, um, you know, I was talking about amphibian pathogens. And so, you know, probably if your listeners are into amphibians and they've heard of the chytrid fungus, um, and that's the sort of general term of that. So, so chytrid fungi actually are a huge, huge taxonomic group of fungi, of which there is two species that infect amphibians. Um, most chytrid have nothing to do with amphibians, actually. It's kind of interesting. But... Um, there's one chytrid, um, you know, species called Patricochytrium dendrobotitis. We call that BD for short. So you might see that. Um, but that's generally just kind of colloquially called the amphibian chytrid fungus. It's easier to say. Um, but several years ago, um, there was a, an outbreak found in Europe 
um, that something that looked like BD, but it wasn't. So when they ran the genetic test, they said, this is not the same species. And it, it turned out to be a different species of this chytrid fungus that we call B-cell for short. And again, it's just because these words are long and who knows how to pronounce them, right? Um, so <laughs> particular chytrium salamandrivorons is the name of that. We call that B-cell for short. Um, and so what's interesting about that pathogen is that it's very similar to the other chytrid that we know a lot about. And we know that it wiped out lots of populations across the entire globe and caused major issues. And so now we have a new sort of species that looks that it could do the same, but perhaps be, um, you know, something about its biology makes it more likely to attack um, salamanders rather than frogs. It turns out that BD can infect salamanders and this B cell can infect frogs. So it's not like they're, you know, but we've seen a lot of um, populations of salamanders disappear um, with the B cell. So that, that's sort of a focal point of that work. And so what happened there was that that sort of was discovered, um, uh, investigated, okay, here's the pathogen, this is what's going on. And then there was a big concern in the United States wait a second, you know, um, can we do something about this, right? <laughs> and so, you know, it's the idea of like, the, 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 the pathogen is not here in North America. Um, maybe we can stop it from getting it here in North America. And so this uh, group was basically formed, um, incorporated a lot of the top amphibian uh, researchers in BD, um, not just in the United States, but also in Canada, and we have representation from Mexico. So it's all of North America, um, a lot of these disease amphibian biologists um, working with, um, you know, uh, folks from, that work for federal agencies. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Canadian equivalent, um, all these sort of big groups that actually can control, um, you know, and create regulations and policies to help um, to help save it off. So this is a group, it's a pretty big group and there's lots of different kind of working groups within it. Um, and so, you know, I'm still involved with it. I'm the chair of the diagnostic working group. So we do a lot of, um, well, I mentioned PCR earlier, that's what we do in our lab. We do a lot of testing for, you know, both BD and B-cell and other pathogens. And so that's one of my <laughs> fields of expertise. And I meet with a bunch of other diagnosticians and create, you know, new tools and new ways of doing things. And then we speak to other people, you know, um, we have a surveillance group, all these sorts of things. And so the basic idea of this is, um, you know, how can we do our best to stop it from getting here? And then if it does get here, how can we do our best to quarantine it and to create systems to alert people that it's here and so on and so forth. So there's been a ton of work by lots of people um, in this task force. So I was the the chair of it for a year. We rotate through, basically you're the, uh, you know, it's one of those deals where you're the like, um, second in charge and then in charge and then you're still around this last year um, and so that's that's sort of been my role and now I'm uh, still pretty heavily involved with the main group but um, just as overseeing you know one of these working groups and so it's been really I think great um, I mean it's been a great experience just for me as a scientist to be so involved with folks that are regulating but even more importantly and I think a really sort of um, heralding thing from this group is that um, we involve the pet trade as well, right? So normally the pet trade is seen as this thing that, oh, okay, it's private, whatever. We don't know how that works, nothing to, you know. <laughs> um, but it, clearly they're critical in terms of understanding, um, you know, so if, if animals are being imported overseas to, you know, North America, 
that's probably where the pathogens, you know, are going to primarily come in from, right? And so we've been working with, um, you know, sort of a central pet trade organization called PJAC um, that really is 100%, you know, and sort of behind it and trying to work in terms of letting us know, you know, the business side of it. So as a scientist, oh, I know about business and profits and all these kinds of, I don't know anything about that, right? Um, and so, so really we have to sort of, you know, um, work with them to create solutions. And so that's what sort of a lot of has been going on over the past, you know, five or six years with this group um, to sort of do that. And one of the big things we're trying to do is again, build awareness. So communicate this stuff out. So there's a website for that group, um, salamanderfungus.org that I invite your listeners to go check out. And that has all kinds of information on it. If you want some detailed stuff on uh, <laughs> on disease, there's loads and loads of, of pages of that, um, you know, that are there in terms of all the kind of working documents we had. So this is a, an attempt by, you know, the people um, that are working on salamanders to stop, you know, I mean, just imagine that if we contained COVID in Wuhan, China, right? Like a different world. <laughs> That's exactly what we're trying to do here. It's just trying to contain it to spots in Europe and not let it get into North America. That kind of leads into my my follow up question. Is I mean, I, I don't I don't like to compare apples and oranges. I don't I don't want to keep using the, the the COVID analogy, but it's really the, the closest analogy I can think of. But when we first started experiencing COVID before it became a global issue, we tried very, very hard. And when I say we, I guess I could just say that on a, on a, on a global level, I guess, different, you know, different health organizations and governments, et cetera. But uh, it, it wasn't able to be contained, which is obviously we see what we see today for a whole host of reasons. But is the spread of Kittred inevitable? I mean, is this something that's, I mean, you don't have to. I, I understand this is kind of a nebulous situation. It can it can change, but do you have thoughts on that? I mean, is this sort of an inevitable phenomenon that's going to happen regardless of what we do, but we might be able to just better contain it or manage it? No, no, I would not put this much effort into it if I knew it was inevitable. <laughs> just let it happen. Yeah, I mean, I so we talk about you know COVID, and I'll, maybe I'll stop. But anyway, I'm going to give one more example because you know the COVID that we're worried about today is SARS-CoV-2, right? That's the sort of species, if you will, the, the virus um, type. But there was a SARS-CoV-1, right? <laughs> and we don't really know a lot about that. Why? Because it didn't really spread across the whole globe, right? So there are different uh, pathogens that have different characters and different adaptations, um, you know, for lots of different reasons. But there's also if you're able to recognize it, identify it, quarantine animals, you know, um, then, then you actually, yeah, can do a really good job of, of containing pathogens. So, in fact, you know, we have loads and loads of examples of, of human pathogens that have been, you know, have risen and had impact and fallen away. But for any one of those, there are probably thousands that just, you know, got involved in the population for whatever random reasons they were, right? And so, so I think, yeah, definitely that's the idea. We have very detailed protocols of, you know, trying to stop uh, certain, you know, ways of it getting in. But also once it gets in, you know, we have specific contacts with people in every state in the United States. When they see this problem, they know to do this, call that, and there's a protocol to quarantine those animals, isolate them, <clears throat> all that kind of stuff. So, 
So the hope is that, yeah, we can contain that. And we're also working with the partners, you know, from several different countries in Europe um, because that's what they're trying to do. So, so B-Cell is in Europe. It's been in Europe for, you know, seven, eight years, well, probably longer than that, but that, that's when we've known about it. And it's not all over Europe, right? So, so it, it's not like COVID in that it's an airborne disease and it's just going to spread like a wildfire, right? Um, there's different things about its biology that, that slows that down. But the more we know about it, then the more we can put in um, roadblocks to that happening, basically. That's interesting. I mean, I, I guess it does totally stand to reason that there would be, uh, I guess, really, really sophisticated protocols. I just, I mean, I apologize. I didn't mean to, to ask that in kind of a strange way. But for me, it's just, again, trying to clarify what we hear in, in passing as opposed to what we should be hearing. I don't often hear like victories when it comes to um, preventing disease. You know what I mean? It's like when you, when something goes wrong, everyone hears about it. When something goes right, no one has any idea. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's a fair question. I think that's it. I think that's, you know, I mean, it's it, in some ways too. Not, not talking about COVID, but just talking about influenza A. You know, getting a flu shot. It's sort of the same, same thing. People get a flu shot and they say, "I got the flu." Well, it's a different strain of flus, like, <laughs> but we didn't get the flu you got the shot for, you know, like, so there, there, it's, there's so many layers to it that are sort of complex and sort of understanding, but, but nonetheless, it is, I think, you know, we can identify this as being a particularly dangerous pathogen. And so we're putting a lot of effort and resources into, you know, sort of making, isolating it and quarantining it. And, um, you know, and these are things that literally the NIH and CDC does on a daily basis for human pathogens. Um, and you have no idea, right? <laughs> we have no idea um, because those protections are in place. One in, you know, 10,000 slip through and then, oh my gosh, right? So that that that's really what it is. So we're just trying to do that at the Utopia level as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that these are all things that, you know, the I mean, at least me on a personal level, this is all stuff, this is always stuff that's fascinated me is... Um, just, I mean, I, I just on a, on a personal note, I did about 20 years ago, I volunteered with a local um, organization that did the rehabilitation and release of stranded marine mammals and, and sea turtles and the quarantine procedures that they had just to go. I mean, every everything was kept. This was at a, a local aquarium, but everything was kept off of, you know, obviously off of display. But the the quarantine protocols that they had even for otherwise healthy animals was was pretty pretty stringent so i mean that was my first experience but realizing that there were even more strict i mean is it like with human medicine we hear about different like i mean this is going to sound corny i'm totally totally going off of where i wanted to go with this but um what kind of biosecurity exists for for Kitrid research, like on a lab level, I mean, obviously it's not something that's as virulent as, as like anthrax or COVID because it's not uh, airborne per se, but like what kind of protocols, like what are some of those protocols? Yeah, no, no, they're, they're very um, complete. So particularly, you know, it, it applies to everything, but at universities, you know, we have committees that, you know, and you probably know about committees that look over sort of, you know, animal ethics and using animals in research and things like that. Um, and there's similar committees about biosecurity. So any lab that's using genetically modified organisms or, you know, any kind of uh, pathogen. Or, so there's all sorts of, um, you know, basically 
I mean, they're forms to fill out, but the forms have a purpose. They create training for the people involved. They create systems to check on that and make sure people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. There's monitoring of, you know, um, the labs and, and making sure things aren't spread or taken out of the lab. So, you know, I mean, of course, it's not really going to be like, you know, people with machine guns that are guarding the, the lab to the amphibian fungus. But nonetheless, <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless, it's kind of common sense stuff that, that as it turns out anyway, it's interesting, like, um, you know, these types of, of pathogens don't really do well. So you have to kind of like almost intentionally carry them out in the media that they can survive in, right? Or, um, you know, take a frog that's infected and, and bring it, you know, heavily infected into a site. And so, you know, those are things that can happen, but generally the people working on these things are working to prevent those things. So they're really, it almost has a, a bigger self-regulatory function, frankly, where, you know, um, we're just like, we're not even going to, that has to stay in this room and not anywhere else because we don't want it to infect, you know, the pet amphibians we bring to the kindergartners, right? So, so we police it probably more strongly than anyone else because it's really, um, you know, of concern. Yeah. I, I, the, you know, the whole uh, captive, aspect of it i will we'll touch on later but that's definitely another factor in this equation but i wanted to just touch on really two two topics that we kind of mentioned earlier um as far as climate change goes now chytrid obviously is a fungus that affects the i mean it affects the amphibians as a whole but it, it primarily it's it it affects their skin has climate change facilitated the spread of chytrid, I mean, has it had, let, let's just say that the, the natural like microbes that would exist on anything's skin, whether it's a, a human being, a salamander, whatever. I mean, has the environment as a whole, as it changed, I mean, has it made chytrid easier to be contracted and spread just because of like global warming or changes in precipitation, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, right. So I think that, um, it's a hard question to answer. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't <laughs> mean to, I didn't mean way, to put right? you on the spot. No. Just something that was on my mind. No, no. I mean, I'm just saying that like to, 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 to solve the, the question of that, you know, it's difficult because there's so many factors that are happening. So definitely we have specific studies that show uh, if you change the temperature, if you change the humidity, <clears throat> then certain species are far more likely to be infected. Right. Uh, and the mechanisms then are really uh, multi-layered, right? So some researchers have looked at, like you mentioned, um, pathogens. And so changing the pathogens or changing the climate, I should say, alters the pathogen composition, which alters the ability of the disease to infect either in a positive or a negative. Like there's so many levels that can happen that uh answering it generally is almost kind of impossible but definitely i would say that there i'm certain instances where climate change is really causing a problem um but weirdly enough there may be other instances where climate change is actually solving a problem right so um that's the sort of dynamism dynamism that we're talking about here because again you know what's going to kill the the chytrid on the on the skin of the frog is um you know heat so, you know, it, can only, it can't survive above certain temperatures and UV light kills it. And so actually being hotter to some extent can, you know, the, the frogs can sort of sunbathe and, and kill some of these pathogens on their skin, right? So um, use like a behavioral thermal regulation, right? Just like a fever. Like if we have a fever, frogs can do that by sitting in the sun 
and basically killing these pathogens. So in some ways that can help them as long as it, you know, but then climate change, if it gets too hot, <laughs> just like if your body has a fever and it can't break the fever, like that's going to cause a problem. So yeah, I mean, uh, it's a great question. I think that has just sort of a lot of different nuances to, to when it can really matter and when it can't. Yeah. It's, it's just one of another one of those dynamics, I guess, that I was just curious about. I, I, Again, you try to, I mean, you look at everything in life as, as it's some sort of a puzzle, but not every puzzle is just four pieces that go together. There's, there's so many other pieces and then it, it, it's just, there's, there's so many variables and just trying to make sense out of it in my head. I just keep thinking of all these other little scenarios that could possibly, you know, play out in this because it's, it's such a big problem. It can't just be as simple as, as, as one single problem. It has to be more than that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's what, you know, keeps us interested. We got lots of things to look at. I know. I know. That's what, that's, that's what always interests me about is the fact that it's not just an open and shut case. There's so much more to it. One of the other aspects of your research is, is, is tile drainage. And I know you've kind of went on about it pretty extensively, I guess, in some of your work, but I'm not familiar with that. Can you tell us what tile drainage is and how it's affecting amphibian populations? Yeah, so what tile drains are is, is a technology that um, farmers would use on their fields. So more and more now, they're coming out with more drought-resistant seeds. And so um, it's actually becoming, interestingly, particularly in the Midwest, less of a concern that their fields will dry out because they can irrigate them and water them, and more that they'll become flooded and the crop will, you know, either sort of be overtaken by fungus or bacteria or just die from being drowned really, right? And so, um, so yeah, so farmers are, are now and have been over the last decade installing these, um, they're called tile drains. Originally they were tiles when this idea was founded a long time ago actually, but now they're um, really just plastic pipes. So plastic pipes with holes in them and so the water um, will drain off into these pipes and almost like a sewer line, the pipes will carry the water away from the fields. And so it's a way to, to keep your fields, you know, somewhat dry um, so that, you know, things like corn, soybeans, wheat can, can grow in it. And so, um, yeah, so when I got here in South Dakota, we, um, you know, saw this was a thing. We were, we were doing a lot of pesticide research and so we're interested in and kind of what farmers here were putting on the fields and what was getting in the water and, and how is it getting there. And it occurred to me, so we have some sites around here. So again, this is a sort of native prairie grassland area. The prairie potholes is the name of the region up <laughs> where we're at. And so there's, you can imagine these little potholes, these little depressions of wetlands, which is like heaven for frogs. So that's, that's where we like to go are these wetland areas. Um, but what, what's happening is that the farmers are sort of putting in these tile drains, so these plumbing under their field, and then all of that is sort of emptying into a big um, outfall pipe, it's called basically a big pipe, that sort of dumps into these wetlands. And so we thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> like, because what, what do you expect to find if, you know, you're draining farmlands um, and putting them in pipes and what, what's going to be in that pipe, right? So that, that's, we've been doing this work probably uh, seven or eight years, something like that now, um, examining kind of what's, come, what's in that water that's coming out of that pipe. And is it impacting animals that are in those wetlands, right? And so um, here in, in South Dakota, we, we found two sort of contaminants that are um, of great concern. So what we did is have a series of wetlands that we know have these tile inputs tile drain inputs and then another series of wetlands that don't have that right so they're sort of our reference or control sites if you will 
And so we measure exactly what comes out of the pipe. And then we also just measure the water in the bigger wetland area, right? Um, and so we see significantly higher levels of selenium, which we know to be a really problematic contaminant. There's a lot of studies in, in California in particular showing sort of massive issues of selenium toxicity um, in birds in particular, right? Um, but also um, a pesticide called a neonicotinoid, uh, and the root where there is nicotine. So I think we all know nicotine is, you know, from tobacco, but the plant, tobacco plant is not, you know, growing nicotine so we can just have a cigarette outside the bar. <laughs> the function of nicotine is actually an insecticide. So um, the natural, you know, sort of cause of the plant growing nicotine is so that insects won't eat it. So that's been co-opted into an insecticide that you can then put um, and apply to, to crops and so that insects won't eat the crops, right? Um, and so what's interesting about both of these things is selenium is actually um, in, in here, just because of geology, is, is naturally occurring at pretty high levels in our soils. And so as farmers are digging up these soils and putting drains in the midst of them, they're basically releasing lots of different selenium that's just naturally occurring in there and, and pumping it out to these wetlands, right? All right, and then the neonics, uh, call that for short, neonics, um, those pesticides um, are actually, so you can spray them and it's a normal application of pesticides, but when you spray pesticides, there's all kinds of issues, right? So if the wind blows, you get overspray and all these kinds of problems. So the, the innovation was, um, let's coat the seeds with the insecticide, and then when we put them in the ground, like nothing can happen, right? There can't be any overspray or drift or anything like that because it's in the ground, and the plant will just take it up and it grows. Well, then you have to think about that there's pipes underneath these things. <laughs> and so the rain is basically raining, right? Some of that insecticide is getting pulled into the seed, but a lot of it is just getting washed off the seed and pulled into these pipes that's then being pumped right into these wetland areas. And so, so the sort of research that I've had many of my graduate students working on through the years is looking at, okay, we see this in the water, is it having impacts, right? And so we have lots of different um, studies showing, um, yes, we find selenium like in the insects in the wetlands. We find selenium, you know, in um, turtles, right? <laughs> in the turtle blood that we're looking at. Um, we find these pesticides, right? And same things. And so um, obviously insecticides are gonna be killing insects in these tile sites. That's, their, that's what they do. So of course, they're going to be the best sentinel species in a wetland, right, um, are the insects themselves. And so when we actually go out and do these surveys, um, we find that there's a lower insect diversity at these tile sites, right? What do frogs eat? <laughs> insects, right? And so we have other studies, and this is one we're just submitting now for peer review, um, actually showing two. So if we just go out and grab um, northern leopard frogs are what are pretty predominant at all these sites, and we just grab some from these control sites and some from these reference sites. Um, we find significantly higher levels of, of neonics um, in those frogs that are in the tile sites. Um, what's really interesting about this work is that um, basically it was thought that, um, and I'll get a little technical here, but I think you enjoy this, right? Go ahead, go for <laughs> so it. So the, the neonics stuff. So basically, these insecticides weren't thought to cross um, what's called a blood-brain barrier, right? And so you have this sort of protective barrier in brains for a lot of different animals. And, um, you know, things can't get in your brain. That's a big deal. Um, and it was sort of said that, well, neonics can't cross this barrier. And so we're, you know, 
um, getting ready to publish the first study to show that in fact these are crossing this barrier and so sites that have um, you know frogs from these tile sites do have these neonics in their brain and even more interestingly um, their brain morphology is different so parts of their brains that we're measuring are different sizes when you compare the two different sites and so then we took that's correlational so you know there's maybe something there, but who knows? I don't know. Some, there could be something else in the tile sites that's causing all this madness. So then we, we do is bring it in the lab and we take um, frogs only from control sites and then expose them to a series of different concentrations of these neonics um, and basically find, you know, as you increase the concentration in the water, you get higher concentrations in the brains. Um, pretty straightforward, right? <laughs> and and on top of that, because we we're doing laboratory experiments, we also measured behaviors. So, um, you know, how often, how quick a frog would be to respond to food is an e easy and interesting behavior to do, right? <laughs> it's ecologically relevant and, and sort of a quick thing to do. We found effects there as well. So it's pretty clear then that we can see that these insecticides are leaving the farms getting into the wetlands, getting into the food that the frogs eat, getting into the frogs themselves, changing their brain morphology, and changing their behavior. So, yeah, pretty harrowing. <laughs> Have you noticed certain species of frog that are more susceptible in situations like this? And I'll, I'll, let me explain why. Where I live here, we have bullfrogs galore. And, and there's a number of reasons behind that. But when I was younger, we had... We had leopard frogs. We had American toads. We had a, a greater diversity of species, and now it's really just bullfrogs. And from other guests that I've talked to, the idea is that, like, leopard frogs, for example, are more susceptible to certain, like, ranavirus and, and chytrid, et cetera, which is apparently here where I live. Are you noticing certain species that are more adversely affected by these tile drainage systems than others? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So um, there's a lot of actual research on this that's sort of interesting as well. Um, so a colleague of mine actually looked at if species are evolving a tolerance. And so, yeah, some of that can can come down to just their own physiology. Like you say, bullfrogs, for whatever reason, are highly tolerant of all kinds of things, <laughs> um, including a lot of insecticides. Um, and other ones are not, right? But but interestingly, there's some studies that show that some of these frogs that live next to farms and have lived next to farms for 80 years, um, you know, it, that the pesticides kill the frogs that are susceptible and the ones that aren't actually live. So there almost is this adaptation that could be happening in some of these populations. And so that's really interesting and hopeful in some way. <laughs> I mean, we don't know what species it's selecting out, unfortunately, right? So, so I mean, the, the sad part of that idea of evolution is it's, of course, not as simple as, like, the strong survive, because the strong that survived may not be able to deal with ranavirus as well, right? And so um, when you have these multiple stressors happening, then, then you have real big problems, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think that um, in the end, it's, it's also difficult. So that was the initial thing that we tried to do is simply go out there and count frogs. Are there more frogs or less frogs at these two different sites? And what we find is that like, if anyone knows anything about frogs, some years you go out, there's 10 million frogs. <laughs> and then the next year you go out and there's four, right? So, so it made it very difficult, frankly, for us to actually discern differences in terms of abundances at these tile and non-tile sites. 
that being said, though, we do see um, that it appears that some of these, when we expose them in these sort of experimental conditions, are way more sensitive than others. So um, we don't really have evidence in the field yet, just because of the nature of how we do the surveys. But nonetheless, um, you know, we think that that's definitely, it's got to be true. I mean, it goes back to the whole canary in the coal mines thing I was saying earlier. There definitely are more sensitive species and more tolerant species. And so as we sort of keep an eye out and watch these things um, get implemented, we'll start to see effects. I mean, the, the last thing I'll say is that the, the tile drains in South Dakota are somewhat new, and the neonics are also somewhat new. So these effects, we may not see these effects for another five years too, right? So sometimes these things take a while to, to take seed in the, in the environment and have effects that you can actually measure. While we're on the subject of measuring, I've always been curious, how has methodology advanced in, say, like the, the past decade? Because I participated in a, like a, um, not really a formal study, but there was a, a local, I think it was a local either university or a government agency that were doing basically like a, like a survey of a, it must have been the state because it was a state park. And basically we went in there with, with you know, with, with nets and we basically just counted everything that we saw. We counted every species of salamander, every species of frog. What are some methods that are currently being used in terms of, I guess, a value? I mean, I, I mean it's kind of a general question, but in terms of the tile drainage study, like, I, I mean, is it still just as simple as just going out there and counting frogs or is there anything more sophisticated in terms of methods being used now? Yeah, I mean that's that's still the core way to do it because it's weirdly effective. <laughs> uh, people have come up with all kinds of other measures, and, and somehow just walking a straight line and counting frogs is terribly well done. I mean, there's if you're talking about frogs and not salamanders, then doing call surveys is also really a great way to sort of identify more rare species, you know, because you may not see them as you're sort of walking and looking for the frogs, but you'll hear them calling, you know, particularly during breeding season. Um, but but I think the latest coolest thing um, is is eDNA. This is environmental DNA, and so um, with the price and the technology, you know, price coming down and the technology advancing so quickly, um, uh, it's becoming more and more common for researchers to sort of take, you know, simply just take a water sample, bring it back, you know, send it off to a lab prep it and send it off to a lab and then they can tell you what species are there based on the DNA that they filter out from that water, right? Um, and now it's even <clears throat> getting to the point, you know, and we're really thinking about this in terms of pathogens, especially like, is there a pathogen in this environment? You know, test that water. Is it there? Cool. Okay. We're good. Or, oh no, it's, we find it there. Let's, let's, you know, quarantine and be concerned. Uh, but even now there's sort of uh, a lot of push to develop in the field tests. So I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now, you know, graduate students are walking out to, to sites and just bringing a little kit along with them that can basically detect, you know, are there leopard frogs here? Yep. <laughs> um, that, that's sort of the, the sort of coolness of, of science and technology is that we're sort of, it's almost getting to the Star Trek phase, right? The little tricorders, if you remember those things back in the day, um, you know, where you have... Uh, Mr. Spock pull out the thing and you could just measure things out of the air. Uh, it's kind of getting there, right? So that uh, with the DNA technology, we're sort of able to do a lot of those things. It, it, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that. And there's a lot of steps that have to be sort of done before we get there. But, but that's definitely, I think, where we're on the road to with these molecular technologies. Yeah, it seems like it would take all the fun out of it, though. 
<laughs> but once you know it's there, you can spend time looking for it, right? Yeah. I mean, how many times you spent you know, hours at one place looking for something that's not there? <laughs> you know, a few moments ago, you mentioned um, call surveys. And this is something that intrigued me because I had watched one of your lectures. It was 9 Million Reasons to Care. and It was on YouTube. And this really aroused my curiosity. You, you talked about subtle differences in calls based on regional variation, meaning I think the term you used was, was dialect. And it's something I, I'd actually asked another scientist in the past, how much difference, how much variation is there in calls between one frog population, say, on A side of the state versus the same species on, say, like B side of the state? Yeah, so it, it I use the term dialect because I think people can relate to that in terms of just human speech dialect, right? And so um, in the same way, that it really depends on the state. <laughs> so if you talk to people in northern Minnesota versus southern Minnesota, their dialects are pretty different, <laughs> okay, um, right? But if you talk to someone in east Georgia versus west Georgia, eh, not so much, right? Um of course, it's just going to vary by, you know, different regions to differing amounts, but it really is a problem, interestingly enough. So so we would do call surveys, you know, go out and listen, but then we said, all right, we'll use some technology. So we have these things called call boxes, which are basically things with fancy microphones with a, you know, SD memory card in it. You set it out, you know, in the wetland, you leave it, come back the next morning, you got a card for, full of calls, you can recognize what species are there, get 12 of them, you can do huge amounts of surveys over lots of space really quickly, right? And, well, then what do you got, though? You got a card with 12 hours of calls on it. And so, you know, you can only punish undergrads so much. So, like, that's a lot of time to spend listening to calls. So there's software, analytical software that um, is available that will recognize, let's say, the call of a northern leopard frog. <clears throat> and so it will just scan through that, um, you know, audio recording and say, oh, yep, here's one, here's one, here's one, and you can listen and check on, yep, that's one, that's one, that's one, right? It's great, it's beautiful, right? But the thing is, when we got the software, I mean, this is just to answer your question, like, I think they were, uh, we had calls from Ohio, Northern Leopard Frogs, um, something like that, so a few states away, but it wouldn't work. Our, our leopard frogs, to me, didn't sound that different, like I could kind of hear a difference in my own ear, but the the software recognition technology, the frequencies were different enough that it just said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so again, I think because our ears as humans are not probably attuned to the same thing that um, frogs are, but I'm guessing a frog listening to someone from Northern Minnesota, you know, versus Southern Georgia doesn't hear anything different either, right? <laughs> so the dialogues are really key to those species. But but it is something that we know, you know, and there's a lot of work on this in birds particularly, um, you know, um, songbirds and how they sing and things like that, that you can really tell that a lot of that vocalization, there's obviously a genetic part to it, but there's also a quote-unquote cultural part. So they hear, you know, other um, birds around them, or in the case of frogs, you hear other frogs around you, and that sort of helps kind of guide you know, how you sing, how you call. And, and that's the same with humans. Where you grow up, you know, you hear that around you and that's just what how you speak, basically. Yeah, I'm well aware of dialects. I have one of them. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's pretty clear. I, I tone mine, I actually tone mine down pretty significantly for the show, but when I... Uh, no, it's not working, Dan. We when I, well... <laughs> When I resort, when I resort to my natural habitat, so to speak, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty intense, but 
<laughs> the funny thing is about the about the um, the New York. I hate to use an, an accent, but the inflection is that very few people in metropolitan New York, like Manhattan, speak the way I do, and it, it radiates more. It's radiating more and more outside of the the center of the city, and a lot of people come from come to New York from other places. They come other states, other countries. It's a big cosmopolitan area, but it, it moved out of there. So I was at a local beach one day with my with my daughter and two like younger people came up and they for some reason started to talk i don't know why people talk to me but they do and um <laughs> he started talking to me and i'm like okay okay i i kind of want to go back to doing what i'm doing with my, my kid here and he says that's some accent you have i said okay he says where are you from i'm like here i live here he goes i said where are you from he goes brooklyn I'm like, where? He goes, Williamsburg. I said, ah, I said, that explains it. it Williams, Williamsburg, Brooklyn has a lot of people who came from, from out of state. It, it became a very gentrified area. Yeah, sure. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. I, I live here. I, I, I'm like five generations living here. And he didn't even recognize my accent as being a New York accent. <laughs> but that's yeah so that's just the thing yeah, that happened yeah. but but uh, that's why they, that's why they say uh, uh there no one has an accent in la because no one's actually from LA. yeah like everybody moves there yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no that's that's yeah no that makes sense but i mean in terms of frog dialect i mean the dialects of really of, of any language have always fascinated me but i mean do these frogs like you said they they pick it up from hearing one another or are there subtle changes in their morph in their morphology that makes them physically call differently no no there, there are studies that you can just basically you know pull a frog from one region and raise it somewhere else and it will sound like whatever region it's been raised in so it's it's definitely cultural i mean there's clearly a genetic component that you can't make a northern leopard frog sound like an american toad <laughs> like that's where there's different structures that make the calls very different between different species um, but within a species that he had, it seems to be almost entirely um, cultural. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's some some variation, right? Like your voice can sound different than my voice just because of the genetics. But generally speaking, yeah, like you can tell someone's from Brooklyn or not. It's not because of their genetics, it's just because of their culture. Yeah. Well, no one speaks like that in Brooklyn anymore. So. <laughs> Yeah, some 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 spots it it depends on where you are, but it's not it's not like it used to be unless your family was there for a long time. But um, yeah, so that's pretty cool. I I wanted to ask. I mean, this is kind of not really some scientific. These are really some more opinion questions. But I mean, is there a particular species that you personally hold dear? Like, if there was one species of amphibian that you had to pick to study or, or to be involved with on some level? Well, I mean, it goes back to the beginning for me, right? So like I told you my initial story, um, you know, uh, I worked with the California mute and I fell in love with it right away. And because of that species, my whole career is what it is. So I still definitely have an affinity. There's no California newts in South Dakota, sadly. Um, <laughs> but uh, definitely anytime I take a trip out there, I, I try to interact with some, uh, some biologists that are working on newts and go and go revisit them. Um, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things that you have an experience with the species and, and it stays with you. And so for whatever reason, for whatever species it is, um, that's the one to me I think is, is just my all-time favorite and always will be. Yeah, I think everyone has that one, one or two species that's really just, uh, really just special to them. I mean, before we, we're kind of at the end here, but before we wrap up, I, I 
kind of wanted to ask you just to see what your thoughts are on this. And this is really just kind of a, you know, kind of a subjective question. But I mean, I'm, I'm first and foremost, I'm, I'm a hobbyist. OK, I, I have enjoyed keeping amphibians in one capacity or another for a, a long time. But I, I believe that hobbyists should still have a vested interest in, in conservation. And I know that many of my listeners, they support sustainability and responsibility in the hobby and whatnot. My question really is, do you think that there are ways that hobbyists and members of the scientific community and conservationists can work together toward a common goal? Because I often see a division there. And at least in my opinion, I feel like there is ground that can be covered on either side, really. Um, how do I put this? I guess to bridge that gap and, and move closer together towards a common goal i mean do you i don't want to put you on the spot but do, do you have any thoughts about that yeah i mean again i think i go back to the conversation we had about the the b-cell task force i think one of the sort of major strides that we've made there was involving the pet trade right um and that's something that just is normally not done uh for whatever reason it's not actually entirely clear why right um, but be I think it is sort of just inevitable. It's getting to be an inevitability <laughs> because, you know, folks that want species from other places, um, you know, you you're starting to realize more and more that there are fewer places and there are fewer animals. And so, um, you know, I find when I talk to hobbyists, of course, their approach is very different, right? And they're all often more interested in sort of, you know, um, yeah, keeping the animals and behavior of the animals and, and those sorts of questions, which are different than mine. But nonetheless, we both sort of share that common care about, you know, these and we want to see them persist and, and you know, and be available, right? Even if that's in the wild or, or in your living room. <laughs> and so I think that, yeah, it's sort of getting actually forced into that way where we really have to work together. Um, because, you know, the, the big thing about hobbyists is there's loads of them. Right. I mean, there's not nearly as many scientists as there are people that are, you know, um, collecting amphibians. And so uh, I, I think it really is a, a group to mobilize and really engage in in that way. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's what we're trying to do at the highest level with, with, you know, the sort of pet trade organization so that we can message down to pet stores, you know, and then hopefully go out to broader groups, you know, on sort of, you know, discussion boards and things like that to really sort of integrate and to get um, people uh, motivated and interested um, and just educated, really. I mean, that's just all it boils down to. Yeah, I think that the majority of the people that I've spoken to, people I've, I've had on the show, really, I mean, everybody has a, has a vested interest in, in amphibians. I mean, that's the whole focus of the show from the day one. But I found that both sides aren't necessarily willing to acknowledge each other. And for, for me on a personal level, I never really understood why that was. I felt like as a hobbyist, I, I, I can't turn a blind eye to natural pressures and things that are going on. Because if, I mean, if I want to, if I want to maintain my rights to keep a certain species, I have to be responsible about it. I, I can't just ignore the science and even just common sense that goes into life on this planet that's outside of my living room, so to speak. But it's, it's, it's frustrating because you'll have a lot of hobbyists and a lot of conservationists, et cetera, who kind of like an adversarial thing. And I never really understood why that had to be because, I mean, like you said, there's, there's, there's a lot of hobbyists out there. And I feel like 
the the hobby is changing in a way that I like to think is less less take and more let's talk about this type of situation if that makes any sense like when you say that you know, the, the B-Style task force in, involves the I mean I even hate to use the term pet trade because it seems like it I don't know it just seems like it's such a you know the hobby sounds better but that's just semantics but when you <laughs> okay. I know when you I, I, I don't know it's just I don't like the whole the pet trade thing just sounds so dirty but um when you say that you 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 work with the petrate, I mean, can you can you give some specifics in terms of what what happens? Yeah, I mean, mostly this is this is at the high level, right? So this is mainly talking about um, communication. So it's not. I don't think it necessarily is aimed so much at, at hobbyists per se that are really into it and knowledgeable. It's more about like Billy, the five-year-old who gets a pet salamander. <laughs> okay, so he goes to the pet store and buys the salamander, and then you know after a week is like, all right, whatever, who cares? And so they're going to take that salamander and go let it go into nature, right? I mean that that's what often happens. Um, and so just creating communication along those lines, you know, in the stores and in you know documentation and things like that. It, they can just sort of trickle down and say, oh, okay, if you don't want the salamander, bring it back to the pet store. <laughs> like letting it out into nature is, is a big problem, not just because the salamander can't survive in whatever you know continent you're in, but also it can carry diseases and things like that. So I think that's that's a lot of the um, you know the, the concern in terms of that, of communicating that. I mean, I find that the contention on our end is not with hobbyists per se, it's with illegal hobbyists, right? So that, that I think is, is but, you know, um, I think pushes things uh, where, where, where people that are conservationists are like, oh, like, you know, people taking things that shouldn't be taken because there's only a few left in the world. Like that, that that's I think where that tension is sort of generated from in my mind, you know? Um, and, and that's, I don't know if that's if there's anything you can do about that, right? <laughs> Those are different value sets of like leaving something in nature versus wanting to have the last one. Um, and so that, that I think maybe some of that tension just sort of originates where people see people on other sides that way, you know, but I don't really think it's that way. I feel like most hobbyists I interact with, and, I, and that's who I interact with a lot, right? If I'm going to grab some snakes from the lab and, you know, do a public event, like who shows up to these things, right? <laughs> like always hobbyists, right? Um, and there's never any bad blood between any of us. They're always really interested in what I have to say. And and if I'm having issues with the animal care, guess who I contact are people that care about these animals, you know, are taking care of them all the time. Um, so, so right. And, and I think there's a lot of, you know, um, scientists that are also hobbyists, right? I mean, <laughs> that's just how it is. If you love those animals, you you may have a whole you know, um, terrarium, uh, in your house and all kinds of different animals. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe again, that's sort of a, a headline in my perspective of like, you know, there's some, uh, incompatibility there, but that's not really sort of been my experience at all. Um, I've learned a lot from hobbyists, you know, and, and I think that <clears throat> they're important, because they care about the animals more than anyone else in the general public. I mean, we're talking about amphibians here, right? <laughs> so if I talk to the general public about a dog, man, 
everybody loves dogs and they think it's great. And if a dog jumps on a zoom, it's like the most amazing thing ever. Right. Um, and I, I like to make the you know analogy that, you know, people are walking dogs down my sidewalk all the time. And I like dogs. I'm not thinking against dogs, but if I went and grabbed a snake and walked down the sidewalk in my neighborhood, like, Oh my God, people would freak out. Right. <laughs> Nobody would like that. So, so to me, it's like, that, that's who the hobbyists are, people that care about these creatures, you know, amphibians and, and whatnot, that um, they're, they're, you know, a core audience in terms of understanding conservation and making things happen. And so, yeah, I think, again, a lot of this ties back to just communication. So, you know, increasing communication between those two groups probably really will go a long way, find common ground. I, I agree 100%. I'm, I'm, it's, uh, it's nice to hear someone in your position to to say that with all sincerity i uh it's 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 frustrating as a hobbyist being judged by i mean this must be frustrating for everyone in any aspect of life but being judged by the actions of the lowest common denominator is is consistently frustrating and for those of us who are serious hobbyists who who like to keep things on a on a high level with concerns for um just quality of life of the animal, it, its sustainability and survival within the hobby in general, responsibly sourcing things not from questionable places, et cetera, all that. And then you have one person who comes out and then just sort of stymies the whole thing and you've soured everybody else's attitude towards the hobby based on one stupid person's actions and it's i feel like <laughs> yeah. it you know what i mean it's 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 so easy to be especially in today's world to become polarized and i've met a lot of scientists who started out as hobbyists and many of them still are hobbyists but oh, yeah. I, I feel like it's nice to just extend the olive branch once in a while and just agree to have both sides acknowledge that the other one is not going to going to go away and i think that if more hobbyists really understood that Many members of the scientific community and the research community uh, are also hobbyists and also support some of the higher level, you know, um, more responsible ways of going about it than, like you said, just someone going out and buying an animal on an impulse purchase and then dumping it in a local pond and basically tanking the whole ecosystem. I, it's just it's it's one of those conversations that I consistently like to have with people because I feel like it's it's one that's that's lacking, you know. It's that gap between um you know, be between basically two professions, you know. And I it's just not something that I think really needs to be there. I think that there needs to be more communication in a, in a, in a positive way anyway, but Yeah, no, I totally agree. That's just that's just me, but Well, I mean, we're kind of like I said, we're kind of at the end here, but I mean, is there anything that you wanted to Ed, or anything before we wind down? Anything that you want, any research that you have up and coming that you might want to uh, share or anything else that we didn't cover? I mean, the only other thing I'd say is, uh, you know, if folks are out, you know, hiking around and looking for amphibians and reptiles and things like that, um, uh, you know, one, one thing I like to promote, I have nothing to do with it, but I think it's a great thing, <laughs> is an app called Herp Mapper. Uh, like herp, like herpetologist, mapper, like a mapping um, group. And what that is, is a, it's a cool app, you know, and there's other things like it, like iNaturalist, maybe some of your listeners have heard of. <clears throat> but this one's specifically about herps. And so you can go out and find a, a, you know, an animal 
you don't have to know what it is. It's beautiful. Like you just take a picture of it. <laughs> and then the phone, the GPS on your phone, you know, tells the location. Uh, you fill out what you can kind of say about it, you know. Um, if you know the species, you can write it. But if you don't, it doesn't matter. And wherever you are in the country, um, it'll send it to, you know, this, this database online. And we have sort of uh, experts in each of the different regions that get a notification. They say, okay, I'm going to look at these five entries and identify these animals and, you know, say what they are. And so it's a really nice, I mean, maybe you heard this term citizen science. This is a, a, a way for, you know, normal citizens to be involved in the science in a way that uh, is helpful um, and easy and kind of fun, right? I mean, it's like geocaching for frogs, really, <laughs> right? And so, so, so I think that's a really fun uh, and interesting and good thing. And it can get more of the public involved in, in things like that. Um, that I really think it can help um, in terms of a lot of the local conservation. So understanding what species are around, right? So birders have been doing this with their Christmas count for over a century, right? <laughs> and so we have very good data on what species are where and which ones are disappearing and which ones aren't. Um, we don't have that with amphibians. And so this, I think, is something that's pretty fun and, you know, um, if you're a senior citizen, it's something fun to do. If you have kids, it's something, I mean, it's for everybody, right? You can go out and, and just sort of look for animals. And as you see them, um, you know, take some photos and, and do it that way. So um, I, I always like to plug uh, my friends over at HerpMapper. I think they have a cool system and it's really uh, nice and easy to do. And, it, and it's an easy way for, for people to sort of get involved and, you know, and then sometimes you bring along your friend and they're like, oh, what's this? Oh, I never thought about doing that. And you get someone else interested in amphibians. That's, that's kind of our goal. <laughs> I think that's great. The citizen science aspect of, 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 um, you know, of, well, of science, <laughs> the citizen science aspect. I always, I always enjoyed that. Like the, the, the survey that I participated in and I mentioned earlier, it was extremely satisfying because number one, I got to be in a place that I would never have normally been allowed to have been. Cause it was uh, that part of that preserve was private. And, um, you know, I got to be a part of something which was, which is exciting. It, it makes it, it, makes you appreciate the natural world and it also makes you feel valued at the same time. So what, what was the name of that app again? I'm sorry. Yeah, that's fine. It's called Herp Mapper. Herp Mapper. So H-E-R-P-M-A-P-P-E-R. Okay. I'm definitely going to have everyone go out there and check that out. One last question I have for you. I mean, as an academic, what advice would you have to someone who wanted to become a herpetologist? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, I did it by accident, so <laughs> anyone can really do it. Um, you know, it, it's often, I think, you know, um, there's lots of different paths to do that. Generally, you know, it requires sort of an undergraduate degree. Um, and so that, that it requires you to college and major in environmental science, biology, wildlife, whatever the sort of local college has. I think that's that's kind of the core thing. But But that will usually get you tied in, you know, to uh, a professor that's sort of te teaching herpetology, um, maybe in their research, but maybe not, you know. Um, and, and, you know, as a sort of student, even myself, um, they're just opportunities just started to appear. So when you're in that realm, you know, there's just opportunities. And so I, I did a lot of work with the National Park Service because there were some opportunities, you know, there, Fish and Wildlife Service. And so there were a lot of paths I could have chosen actually. And some of my friends, you know, said, oh, I don't want to do academia. I'm not really interested in writing grants and writing papers and doing statistics. That doesn't sound very fun. <laughs> I want to be out catching things. And so, you know, I have friends involved in, 
in, in federal agencies, and that's more along the lines of what they're doing is, you know, surveying and things like that. So there's a lot of opportunities, I think, in the field for sure. Um, you know, every year I have a lab full of graduate students and undergrads. And so, um, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, possibilities uh, and opportunities that they can do. But that's where I would start is just starting, starting at a kind of local college and finding a herpetologist there. Again, we're not, you know, working on killer whales and everybody, polar bears, everybody, you know, it's a niche field. If someone in my intro bio class of 200 students says they love a frog, man, I really pay attention to that student. <laughs> so, you know, if you're in college, be bold and just talk to the professor. And nine times out of 10, that professor can be like, what? All right, come back, check out these frogs I got. So um, I think that's that's a good start. Yeah, polar, polar bears are overrated. I... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Or maybe I'm not. I don't know. But... All right. Everyone, I want to thank uh, Dr. Jay Kirby for being my guest tonight. It was very, very illuminating. I hope everyone took something uh, took something special away from tonight's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you all again soon. 